Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today I'm joined by director Jay Burleson and actor Darius Willis. What if a lost horror franchise made during the peak of the slasher genre was unearthed today, but only two of the films could be restored? Filmmaker Jay Burleson imagined just that with the third Saturday in October part five and the third Saturday in October part one. Big thanks to Bookman's for sponsoring this episode and to Fort Worth for letting us use their song at the end. If you'd like to connect with the show, the best place to find us online is at followingfilms.com or on Twitter by following at followingfilms. Please leave us a review and follow the show on Spotify. It really does help. You can also support the podcast by going to anchor.fm slash followingfilms slash support. The third Saturday in October part five and the third Saturday in October part one are coming to digital and VOD from Dark Sky Films on May 5th. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Awesome. All right, thanks. Um, Chris from Following Films, you're on with Jay Burleson and Darius Willis uh, to chat about the third Saturday in October. Part five and part one. I'll be here on mute if you need me, okay? Perfect. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks, Stacey. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. I had such a good time with both of these films. Um, the first thing, awesome. I, it, this is a making one movie that works is something of a minor miracle. But then you decided to make two movies at the same time. Um, could you just talk about not only where this came from, but having the balls to even try this? Cause this is a, man, it's a great idea. Well, thank you. Yeah. So originally in 2019, we were working on a completely different project. We were trying to get this more ambitious art house slasher film off the ground. And we've been trying to do for like two years and we've built a lot of momentum and had some connections and put our team together, including our producers, Frank Crafts and Ian Cunningham. And um, we kind of circled fall 2019 as we're making a movie no matter what. And it became apparent we weren't just going to be able to get the money we needed for that film. It was much more ambitious. But um, there was this sense we had that we were going to make a movie, as I said. So um, I had the idea of wanting to do my own lost slasher franchise for almost a decade. It had been on the back burner. And it just kind of made a lot of sense for us to. Um, take that idea and run with it because I know those movies so well. I grew up with the Halloween Friday 13th and I street films in particular. So um, that was kind of how we started with part five. And um, the idea of making part one came about, you know, a year later we had an opportunity to go back and make something else. And knowing that we did want to turn this into a lost franchise and make more of them, it just made a lot of sense to kind of double down and uh, felt like we would be better off having two of them to really get the idea out there into the world with a little more strength. And um, yeah, I mean, it was not easy making two movies back to back, especially, you know, during COVID for part one. But uh, it's something I wanted to do for a long time. And there was a lot of creative energy around it. Yeah. And, and clearly that this is something that I think for me personally, the, biggest turnoff of any film is cynicism to me. And you can absolutely feel the heart of everybody in this film is involved in this, that everybody is just all on board for this project. And as 
absurd as it gets at times, as far as you push this thing. I mean, Darius, you probably have one of my favorite driving sequences that I've ever seen where there's this imbalance of the way that you're speaking and the way that you're handling the car in it. And I'm not sure, uh, I don't want to give it away because it was just this little tiny moment that I absolutely love. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your approach to such an unusual character. Um, yeah. Uh, Christopher, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I can hear you just oh, fine. You hear me just fine. Okay. Um, uh, well, let, let's look at it. Uh, let's go back. It's, it, it's Jay's vision, right? So yeah. Jay has this vision of, he shows me this car and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So then when, when I'm reading the script and then I'm looking at the scene, visualizing it myself and I say to myself, okay, Darius, how are we going to do this? So I just, when he said action, I just went for it. I just, how it felt, I went with it. And if Jay didn't like it, he'll say, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? And then I'll be like, okay, let me let me think of some good scenes from movies where there was a driving scene and and the way they were uh, corresponding to one another. Uh, So I'm like, okay, so and, you know, KJ, who's the co-star with me, she was just like. Hey, I'm gonna follow you. Whatever you do, I'm gonna go with you. So, and that and that's how we end up creating that that car scene. Just we went with the moment and how it felt. Oh, and it, and it, it comes across beautifully. It's so much fun. The chemistry that two of you have, the way you play off of each other, it's just really, really fun to watch. And it's all these movies, while they're too, it's really impressive how tonally different they are. Because um, it feels like, and I don't know if this was what you were going for or not Jay, but part five feels like Friday the 13th or no, I'm sorry. It feels like a Halloween part four and five in that era of it, especially with the, the driving, the just sheer amount of driving that's done in that film and how in Halloween five, it's basically, you know, Haddonfield drift where there's some Michael Myers is driving that much. Um, but there's this visual language that you're using in it. That's completely separate from what you're doing in part one. Could you talk a little bit about that side? Yeah, for sure. That was definitely part of this context to it. With the idea of starting with part five first, we were really leaning into, in particular, uh, in particular Halloween four and five, with okay. sort of Daniel Harris of it all, you know, yeah. centering it around the kid with uh, Poppy Cunningham who plays PJ, and uh, just leaning into the absurdity of it. So I love those movies. Friday the 13th, part six actually was a big influence in terms of the more humorous aspects of it and just being somewhat self-aware of the absurdity of what we're doing but is the clothesline of it it, i'm sorry to jump in but is the clothesline a visual reference to that to halloween uh or to friday 13th part six it's not and you know there aren't very many specific references it's just more so i grew up with all of those movies and watched them so many times that that stuff's just ingrained into me so it's it's really cool that people will ask me a lot of times different things like that. Is that a nod to this movie or, you know, whatever. Um, And most of the time it's not a direct reference. It just kind of ended up that way. Well, and it was even something like Lester. Um, I'm spacing the characters. Prefo- uh, no, now, yeah. what was that? Is that Texas Chainsaw no, Massacre? That is. Because yeah, if that that's is, not, it, I'm going to call bullshit. Okay. No, that was like a very specific um, character that I created for Bart Hyatt, who's also one of my like childhood friends. And uh, he and I would quote um, Franklin from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when he would scream Sally and all that stuff when we were, when we were younger. 
Uh, so yeah, that was pretty on the nose for sure. And I was kind of annoyed with myself that it took me about five minutes to figure that out. Cause I, I'm watching, I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing? And then, then I'm like, Oh, here it is. And then even in part one, there's the, the same kind of like mini bus is going that kind of thing, but it's just all these different yeah. things that are pulling from it. But I really love that about it, that it's something that I don't think you have to have this set of knowledge. You don't have to, I don't think you need to have loved all these films. It'll deepen your appreciation of it. But I think my 12 year old son, I, I don't know that I would be the one that I would show him, but I would absolutely leave this Blu-ray out and I'd be really happy if he found it and put it on because <laughs> I want him to watch this. I just, I don't know that I want to be that parent that's saying, Hey, check right. this out. <laughs> well, that's how we got here because my mom showed me all of those horror movies like Halloween and when I was way too young to see, I'm like six, seven years old. So um, part five was really me tapping into my love of the things I grew up with as a, as a kid, you know, college football and slasher movies. Yeah. Okay. And so I just, I'm sorry, Darius, I have one for you, but I have to touch on that. I know nothing about college football. So I had no idea that this third <laughs> Saturday in October was a thing. And so it it's kind of a mouthful of a title and it took my a minute for me to get my head around it. But then you realize this is an actual thing that's happening, but then you're playing off the way you're changing the names of the schools slightly. And so what it, I, I, this is a love that you have of this, but you're also kind of making fun of I'm from the South of football culture at the same time. Absolutely. You know that I love it, but it, it is also kind of ridiculous how rabid the fan bases are about college football, especially in the South and in Alabama, there's no <laughs> professional team. So college football and high school football as well, yep. you know, the fan bases are extremely rabid. So I did grow up loving it. It just made sense to me that the title reflects sort of like some weird cousin of Friday the 13th, you know, the third Saturday of October. So it just, it always was my vision for this that we would title the films that and that you know the watch party aspect of people getting together to see the game would be you know our camp crystal lake type of setup uh, no and, and and it works it absolutely works in that sense so i think you would find my my hope for this for darius is somebody that ends up in this film that they just see a movie maybe not the part 5 part that they just see third uh, Saturday in October, and they're like, "Oh, football movie! I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw this one on." And then <laughs> they, just, yeah. they put this thing on, and when they get to, you know, I, I mean, I guess by the time if you watch part five, you'd get the intro, and you know, they're about some. It literally, you say crazy shits about to happen, but you know, it for you, Darius, it, in this film, how do you approach this kind of work? Because it's something that feels like you're at times in different movies where you're very grounded and it feels like you're very honest, but then you're completely sincere when you're sitting across from the sheriff, which is one of the more absurd characters that I've ever seen. <laughs> like that, 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 and I love the way that you answer that he's wearing like a space suit, basically. Like he looks like a reject from like space camp in 1982 that he was, he made it himself, <laughs> Like, oh, but you play it honestly, which is got goddamn man. Kudos to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um let, let me say thank you, Chris. Uh <laughs> when when just the whole script thing, um, I'm telling you when I read it, I automatically said just as you as you said, I was like, oh man, just taking me back to Halloween, just taking me back to uh uh Nightmare on Am Street. Uh I'm I'm going back to Friday the 13th. I mean, I'm like 
okay, this is slasher. But then I thought about it after talking to Jay and when he described it, and then I'm looking at the breakdown that he sent me for the audition or whatever. And I'm saying to myself, oh man, Dr. Loomis. So I'm like, okay, I thought about Dr. Loomis and I went back and watched Halloween after I got the audition and I'm looking and I'm like, yeah, yeah. I want to be uh, like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type Dr. Loomis. I want to be so pissed and outraged about him killing my, you know, yeah. daughter i i'm 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 going to lose it but at the same time i got to have some kind of some kind of sane mind you know got to be able to show that i i do think things out a little bit but my driving force is to get this guy you know dr loomis wanted to get michael myers i wanted to get this guy and it it, 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 it and that's Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. This week, I went into Bookman's and I was looking for a film, something that reminded me of a film festival, be it a film that got its start in a film festival or something that was perhaps about the experience of going to a film festival. I went over and looked through the 4K discs and the Blu-rays and the DVDs. Nothing was really jumping out immediately. So I went over to the box set section and I came across Ingmar Bergman's cinema. If you're not familiar, Bergman was a master storyteller who startled the world with his stark intensity and naked pursuit of the most profound metaphysical and spiritual questions. The struggles of faith and morality, the nature of dreams, and the agonies and ecstasies of human relationships. Bergman explored all of these subjects in films ranging from comedies, whose lightness and complexity belie their brooding hearts to groundbreaking formal experiments and excruciatingly intimate explorations of family life. Arranged as a film festival, with opening and closing nights, bookending double features and centerpieces, this selection spans six decades and 39 films, including such celebrated classics as The Seventh Seal, Persona, and Fanny and Alexander, alongside previously unavailable works like Dreams, The Right, and Brink of Life. It's also accompanied by a 248-page book with essays on each film. This particular box set has been something of a white whale for my collection, something I've had my eye on for years, and I've just never felt the need to pull the trigger on it. But then I walked into Bookman's, and there it was. And the price was so incredibly reasonable, I had to pick it up. This is something that... I've been wanting to dive into for a long time because with uh, Bergman's filmography, I have a lot of blind spots and I'm really excited to dive in and um, learn more about his work because every time I've gone and watched one of his films, I'm always struck by how his work has been so influential that you can go back and look at these films and you'll see images or themes or just these kind of ideas that he brings up or that he executes in a way that have had just this profound impact on filmmaking. And you start to see, I guess, what feel like tropes later on, but this is the source. This is where they came from. And it's just really fun to go back and uh, dive into this work. And so I'm really excited to start going and seeing some of these films that I've never seen before. And so was able to get this at Bookman's and 
you should go to Bookman's too and see what you might uncover. Remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the show. You know, it's it's like, hey, a lot of people say, well, they're not acting in horror films. They're just going along with it. It's a horror film. They're not acting. But I was like, okay, I have to put some kind of energy into this. And that was the thing I want people to get out of it. I want to put the energy in. You said exactly what I wanted people to get out of it. Like, wait a minute, this dude seems sincere, but, you know, somewhat he's, he's, he's out there a little bit, especially on some things that Jay got me saying. Well, in the middle of the film, you know, in the middle of this thing that you're talking about, this propulsive act that you're going through, I'm going to get this man. But you encounter a racist redneck at a gas station <laughs> and you have to take five minutes to put him back in his place real quick. So, like, you are completely motivated, but there's also <laughs> you're willing to go off on a side mission for a minute. Yeah, that that moment. Yeah, that moment right there. I really I thought Jay was crazy for writing that in the middle of that. I, I was it. like, what? I was like, what are you doing? But then after I saw it on film, I'm like, you know what? That really worked because it, it it's it's like, let's be honest. There, there are things that happen like that in real life and it doesn't take a break because that happened or that tragedy happened. It still stays there. So yeah. I said, man, Jay really brought something to the forefront. But then at the same time, it fit right in the moment. Because here we are traveling on this road and all of a sudden we have this moment with this guy. And yeah, I do have to lay down my my uh, drive to get him to deal with this this guy, which really I, I kind of, you know, it's like I recognize this guy has no clue. So let me run circles around him and make him look like a fool. You know, so, yeah, I, I think it, it, it worked. It, it worked. Really, it did. It also works because there's the way horror movies are essentially the idea the payoff is inevitable but you're waiting for it to happen you know this thing is going to happen and in that moment you know where we're going we know what the eventual end of the well the idea of this scene where it's going to end up going where this guy is going to maybe realize the error of his way in a moment or you're just going to like slap him one of the two things is going to happen <laughs> at the end of this scene and so it's just how long are they going to actually hold this beat out and allow that tension to build but it's comedic tension and the longer that you wait the bigger the laugh is and it's the same thing in, in with the thrill the longer that you wait to reveal the killer's face or anything like that the more satisfying it is right right and and i i think the, the comedic part of it is, is really funny to me uh, in, uh, in part one and part five as well. Man, I laughed at part five so, so tough when I first seen it. I was like, oh, wow. I was like, you got to be kidding me. So he has this, these comedic moments in the midst of the time where I, I'm like, should we be kind of serious right here? But he dropped these comedic moments. He wrote it in there. And I was like, God, that fits so well, so well. Jay, I got to ask you, um, have you seen the film Student Bodies? No, I've never seen Student Bodies. Because this film feels like a combination between uh, Newcomb High and Student Bodies, somewhere in between okay. that, where it does have, especially part five, where it has that, um, to me, I grew up watching trauma movies. So those were hugely important to me. And just the, it was the, maybe it's just because I was from New Jersey. And so there was this idea, there was these people right down the street from me making these movies for next to nothing that I absolutely love, but it's just, you know, people getting together on the weekends. And this movie has that 
feeling that that passion behind it, where it is this thing that, yeah, at times we just had some duct tape and, you know, <laughs> and, and some caro syrup, but you know what, we're going to make it happen. And, you know, that's where you get the, I don't want to ruin the gag necessarily, but in part five, there's a moment with, there's a pizza death in this thing. And, <laughs> and that thing it's, it's sold in a certain way, but then how you punctuate it with the running around at the end of it, I was dying at that, man. That's so perfect. I just love that, that beat. Well, thank you. Yeah. A lot of that stuff just goes back to, and you know, I have a movie released through trauma called the nobodies. So um, it just, I don't know. That's just my sensibility. And also we were just leaning into the idea that we're going to try to make the best movies that we can, but in many ways it reflects back to, you know, setting this up as sort of a cash in on Halloween, like part one being a cash in of Halloween. A lot of the movies that were made in that time period were cashes on Halloween, but they were still trying their best to make a good movie. They just were very limited in resources, and that was the same situation we were in. And by design, we we're trying to go back and create that experience of those specific time periods. So it's kind of cool how it all plays out. And could you talk a little bit about the posters for these films? Because, damn, man, these are some gorgeous posters. Like, I want to hang this art on my wall. I love both of these. Like they absolutely make a promise with these. Um, I especially love right behind you, the part five, the way that you use the shears as the number five in it. It's just that little touch that were you involved in this at all? The design of these? I definitely had some ideas for the design. They were made by a Canadian artist, Matt Ryan Tobin, I believe it's his name. Um, he's done a lot of stuff. He's fantastic. And um, so, yeah, we had some ideas that we threw his way and then he took it and ran with it. And we just love what he came up with. Oh, he, he crushed it. And I, there's something else in this, in both these movies, there's symmetry in lots of ways um, from the way that you introduce the houses with these, you know, you have this really Im impressive, honestly, um, kind of tracking shot at the beginning of part five. And then in part one, you have the pan shot where you end up with these car mounted scenes shortly thereafter. And so it's, there's visual language that's in all these and you can feel that, okay, this is in part one, they could barely get the money together to make this thing happen. Now in part five, they have more money, <laughs> but maybe the, the filmmakers aren't quite as gifted to make this happen. But so they were able to pull this off and it's just, just they're referencing all these other movies, but they're also referencing each other, which is really fun to watch and to pick that up. Well, thank you. Yeah. And it's funny because we actually had a little bit more money in part one, but <laughs> the references that we wanted, you know, it lends itself to that style of filmmaking where we're just really leaning in. Like we have this zoom lens and we're just going to, you know, exploit that zoom lens as much as possible. And that really becomes the focal point of the, the language of part one. And could you talk uh, uh, just the use, and I guess it, it is in part one, where I'm not sure if this is the right term for it, but it's almost like there's diffusion on the lenses where it gives it that Brian De Palma carry look where everything is kind of a little bit, the light in it. And, and especially in the basement scene where it does, it felt Ooh. like something from carry to me. And I'm wondering if that's what you're going for, if that's something, uh, just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so from a visual standpoint, it's all credit to Chris Hillicky, our DP on both films. And um, we shot on an old 16 millimeter film yeah. lens that was actually used to shoot some local Alabama film on 16 millimeter. High degree was a great zombie movie that ended up on like Sci-Fi Channel in 2004. We know those filmmakers as well, and we were fortunate enough to use their lens. And then I just gave Chris a lot of references for the films that we wanted to mimic in um, Black Christmas, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre were two of the, the major influences on that. But speaking of Carrie, um, the, the temp score for the movie when I was cutting it, there was a lot of Carrie in the temp score. And then we translate, translated that into what made the most sense for the means we had to make the score. Um, so the visual stuff wasn't a direct reference to Carrie, but there's definitely quite a bit of music in there that was directly uh, influenced by the score of Carrie. And there's a, and with, and I'm sorry just to talk about all the references, but it's just something that, um, cause this is absolutely its own thing, but it, from the music standpoint, there was almost this guitar that happens in one point where it felt like something from Twin Peaks, where it was that sort of that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We listened to a lot of Twin Peaks. Now. There wasn't really any Twin Peaks in the temp school that just kind of naturally happened. And on part five, we brought in the baritone guitar. Uh, based on some temp music from Screen Two, and then we just kind of really took that around with it. The the score to or the temp score to Part Five was really heavily influenced by temp scores to Scream and Scream Two, and that big sound, that works great sound, is really out of our budget range. So we leaned into you know more of the Twin Peaks stuff in the early '90s and and listened to kind of the progression of you know the Halloween scores from '78 to '95 for Curses of Michael Myers and things like that. And then our composer Kelvin Wooten, Wooten is just an amazing music producer. So we just really wanted to get in there, use those references, and then do our own thing with it and see what we came up with in the moment. Well, and I think that's absolutely important to mention. It's with all of these elements that you absolutely do your own thing, that it is, it has all these beats and these little nods and touches of other things, but this is absolutely stands on its own as its own creation. And I really dug both these movies and yeah, I just want to say congratulations guys, because this is something that's really fun. When can people see this? How can they see it? Will I get a double Blu-ray set that I'll be able to get for these? Yes, so the Blu-ray release is um, is likely going to be in the fall and May fifth. You know, will be uh, you'll be able to rent the films pretty much anywhere at that point online. Um, one thing I did want to say about you know, speaking of before with the racist, I did build that with the idea that this is going to be our version of, of Doctor Loomis, and what would be some of the things that you know a black man would encounter that Dr. Loomis would never have to deal with that would, you know, on his trek to Haddonville, he's not going to have to worry about this type of shit, but it, it seemed very important setting the movies or setting the movie in 1979 to, um, to be uh, aware of that and reflect that in, in the script. Absolutely. And it's, it, I think you have to set the second one in 94 because that's just a, you're basically elbowing right up to meta horror at that point. It's just the, that's the end of that sort of dimension horror, kind of like riding out the coattails of the Halloween franchise in that way, where it, it pretty much horror movies changed by 95, 96. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Awesome. Well, thank you. Post scream, it was a, a different piece. Yeah. And I'm glad we're, it, it took a while for us to get past that. And I think we are finally well well past that that's in the rear view mirror and it seems like horror yeah. always goes through these cycles um you know where you go through the found footage stuff and then you have the art house stuff and at the end of the day i i'm i'm here for all of it and i just uh, i'm oh i'm just glad that people are still making this shit because this is this is my stuff and i'm congratulations on this man you guys made a great one here thanks, thanks for having us absolutely thank you guys it was nice to meet you thank you stacy you as well all right, man. Have a good one. All right. Uh, bye, guys. Bye. 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 
Time enough to figure you out Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope Voice crack.